ask yourself this question. How many hours of prayer do I have on top of this decision? Or am I just living in reaction? That's what God began to show me. I didn't enjoy this initially, just to be honest. It was a little overwhelming. That they already have plans to leave the moment they show up. Tourists appear in city, states, and nations, but they leave shortly thereafter because they're present in a nation they weren't born into. They weren't really born there. And so they live from season to season instead of dwelling in a dimension. Seasons are fun, but a dimension is the business of a citizen. A dimension I dwell in, a season I frequent. That means there's a start date and an end date. It's hard to see this right now because February thinks it's March, apparently. It was 81 degrees in Dallas today. I checked. I'm appalled by that. Ridiculous. But seasons change and seasons move and seasons are transient. But a dimension you never leave. Your connection to God has to enter the place of dimensional growth. Where I'm expanding dimensionally. Where I stay in his presence and I don't leave his presence. Just like John said in the book of Revelation. I was in the spirit praying. He didn't say I was praying in the spirit. He said I was in the spirit. I just happened to be praying. See John the apostles moving dimensionally. He's in the spirit and everything that he does, that particular moment, he just happened to be in the spirit while praying. He's living as a citizen. I stay here because I was born here. I don't need a visa to visit here because I was born here. My passport says I'm a citizen. When I go to Singapore, I got 90 days. When I go to Jakarta, I got 30 days. When I go to Greece, I have 90 days. You know why? I wasn't born there. But when I come back to America, I come back to my home. This is where I live. My time isn't limited to a visit because I was born here. If you're a citizen of heaven, you don't have to leave his presence. You know why? You were born here. Act like you were born here. Act like a citizen. Because you see, citizens are different. They stay because they were born here. And this took me to something that always bothered me. I always had heard, and I'm sure you have too, that the high priest had a rope tied around his waist or attached to his garment. And when he would enter on Yom Kippur, the Holy of Holies, and he had to walk up to the veil and he was translated through it, that if anything wasn't right in his life, the Lord could could kill him, and they would have to drag him out. And I always, I had heard that. I would even shared that with people. But something just didn't seem right about it. So I began to pull through history, look things up, rabbinical histories, Jewish histories. And I couldn't find a single time where God invited the person in to only kill him and have him be drugged back out. It didn't make sense to me. If he wasn't ready then he probably just wouldn't be translated through the veil. But since he was translated to the veil, the Lord's inviting him in. 
And so I began to pull through history to find a time that this occurred and happened. And the Lord led me to the actual meaning behind the rope. There was a rope. It is factual. It did exist. But the reason is completely different. And it all goes back to understanding the nature of God, how good he is, how amazing and powerful he is. The rope was there to remind the high priest to come out. Because when he went in, he never wanted to leave. The presence of God was so good and so immersive and so inviting. And he left time and space. And he was just with God in an amazing dimension, dimensional growth, living out of dispensations as a citizen of heaven. And the people had to tug on the rope to say, hey, we're out here and we kind of need to know if we're forgiven for another year. So could you come out? But he never wanted to leave. That's how good the presence of God is. And the good news is Jesus made us citizens. We're no longer tourists visiting the presence of God vicariously through the high priest once a year at Yom Kippur. Now you're a citizen. You were born here. You don't have to leave the presence of God. There's no rope to pull you out. You can stay in what you feel 24 hours a day, fellowshipping with him, living from him, existing with him in a dimension of intimacy and connection with God that changes everything. Everything literally changes everything. I don't have to live vicariously through a high priest anymore. He is the high priest. I can go directly to him, straight into his presence, to talk to him, to be judged by him, to be corrected by him. Because if you understand his goodness, you understand you want him to judge you. I pray, judge me, Jesus. Don't leave me in error, God, but judge me with your kindness. Correct me. Don't leave me in error. Make me more like you and less like myself. Let the righteous smite me and reprove me. It's an excellent oil that shall not break my head. Judge me, Jesus, because you understand his loving power to improve you by his judgments, to make you Better and looking more like him by his judgments. The result of prayer should be revelation. The purpose of prayer is revelation, not answered questions that I go in to ask, not even answered prayers, but revelation. Seeing him, understanding him, hearing him as I've never heard him before. He also began to show me moving quickly. I'm going to be a steward of your time tonight. This blew my mind. He said, only tourists, son, ask, is it a heaven or hell issue, though? He said, only tourists ask, but is it heaven or hell? He said, it's a foolish question that betrays your heart. Because if I'm just asking, is it heaven or hell, though, I'm really only worried about missing hell. He said, don't ask, is it heaven or hell? He said, this is what you need to ask. Does it make me more like you? 
Is this within the nature or heart of God? Will this make me closer to him? Or will this put distance between he and I? If it makes me more like Jesus, then do it with all of your heart. That's the question we need to ask. I'm a kingdom minimalist when I ask, but is it heaven or hell? What I'm really saying is I'm only going to do what keeps me saved. And if it doesn't save me, I'm not interested. That's a minimalistic, narcissistic way to see grace and mercy. Do we want to evade hell? Of course we do. But that's not why I'm here. I'm not here. I don't go to him in fear of missing hell. I go to him in love with what I have discovered. In love with what I have found. That there's nothing that can compare to just being with him. That he is my reward. Not what he does for me, but he is my reward. And I'm not going to do things that are extra. And I'm not going to stop doing them if I find out they don't save me. I'm going to do them because I want to be closer to him. It's about being transformed into the image of my king. It's about taking on his likeness and his nature. It's not about becoming more saved or less saved. It's about becoming more like my Savior, spending time with my Savior. It's selfishness personified to say if it's not heaven or hell, I'm going to stop doing it. But does that get me closer to him or does it get me further away? Brent Jones, who I'm partnered with, who started the church where we are in Northgate, says this. It's not is it right or wrong. It's where does it lead. That's the thing. If it leads me away from him, I want it out of my life. If it leads me closer to him, I want it in my life. Like yesterday. I want it now. Because I've got to be closer to him. I've got to be less like me and more like him. Only tourists ask, remember that, is it heaven or hell? I don't judge the people that ask that, but it just helps me realize where you are in the process. There's a bigger picture that I'm missing. Because like I said, this is not about becoming more saved. This is about becoming more like my Savior. Receiving Him, becoming like Him. These are different events. I can receive him initially, but becoming like him is something completely different entirely. One happens in a moment. The other is the journey, not of a lifetime, but of eternity. So this isn't about your moment of spiritual birth or salvation, if you have to call it that. This is about the price that you're willing to pay for more of his glory to rest upon you. To walk with him at a deeper level. And to release the depth that you're walking with him in. Many people ask, Leonard Ravenhill said this, where's the God of Elijah? I love this famous quote. He said, God looks down from heaven and asks, where is the Elijah of God? Super famous, often stated quote, powerful meaning. Where's the God of Elijah? God's saying, where is my Elijah? 
Where's the person that'll live completely, recklessly abandoned to my reckless love they sang about this morning? Where's the person like Mary that can have your entire life totally rearranged completely from top to bottom in one conversation with an angel, and your response to that angel is simply this, be it unto me according to your word. My best laid plans of my life planned out on a vision board, gone, completely, utterly destroyed. She just looks the angel in the eye and says, be it unto me according to your word. Where's the Elijah of God? Where's the Mary of God? What she birthed is the most powerful thing to have ever been birthed. The word made flesh because of her reckless abandonment of all of her plans and her will and her self-interest to just simply say, be it unto me according to your word. I'll be misunderstood for your word. I'll be looked down upon for your word. I'll be left out for your word. I'll be talked about for your word. She's blessed and highly favored, and that favor got her misunderstood right out of the gate. Because if God's going to do something through you that's never been done before, just know people probably aren't going to understand it right away. They might talk about you. They might not like all your posts. You might get blocked on social media. That's not persecution. That's a first world problem. But it might happen. It just might happen. But God's looking for the vessels that say all of that can happen as long as I'm obeying your word. As long as I'm with you. As long as we're connected. As long as you're ordering my steps. That's the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters. Where are those, God could say, looking down from heaven, looking past the tourists for the heart of a citizen? Where are those willing to lose themselves in hours of prayer and fasting? I know fasting isn't fun. And I know there's a lot of different ways to fast and pray. But you're never getting around prayer and fasting. There's just no shortcut. Not going to get around it. It worked for the apostles. It'll work for us. It gets me closer to him. It helps me better connect to his voice. It silences. It's noise cancellation for the flesh. And it works beautifully and powerfully. So do whatever you can do, but do something. Do something just to find his voice as you've never found it. And having said that, we fast it all through January. Anybody thankful it's February? I told the church back in Dallas, look, January, we fasted the whole month, okay? February is for feasting. So if you see me eating more than I normally do, just know that I ate precious little for 31 days. January 2020, longest month of the entire world. Where are those, the heart of God would say, looking again past the tourists for the heart of a citizen, that can freely throw themselves upon the sovereignty of God and say, as our Messiah said, not my will, but thine be done. God is searching earth, not for perfect vessels or he would find none. He's searching earth for vessels 
with the perfect pursuit of his presence. I mentioned this very briefly this morning, but it bears repeating. He's searching through earth's vessels for somebody that isn't perfect, but that has a perfect pursuit of the presence of God. David wasn't perfect, but his pursuit of a perfect God caused him to die blameless in the law in perfection. It's a pursuit that was perfected. It's a hunger that's perfected, not a performance that was perfected, a pursuit of the presence that was perfected. Because his presence meant everything to David. You'll never perfect a pursuit of presence until you understand his presence is the only thing you need. It's everything. It's identity. His presence is my identity. His presence is my source. His presence is my hope. His presence is my answer. Not my position. His presence. If you want to know how to repent, read Psalm 51. You see the repentance coming from a vessel that's perfected pursuit. Certainly not perfected performance. None of us have that I'm aware of. Although some of you have not been less than Jesus for quite some time according to your response earlier. But. It's the pursuit that we have to perfect. When I mess up, I go to him. When I do well, I go to him. When they lie about me, I go to him. When they hurl accolades at me, I go to him. Everything goes to him. Nothing is mine. Anything that is mine is to me from my father. It's not mine. Like the children of Israel said, you have done all of our works through us. Another translation said, all of our accomplishments are really just your works through us. That's the perfection of pursuit. I know that the only good thing that comes through me is him. Beautiful. It's the perfection of pursuit. David embodied it. He lived it. That's why he could say, when threatened with losing what most would say is everything. Psalm 51 and 11, one of my favorite verses in the entire word of God. This is what he says. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Notice, he doesn't say, don't take away my ministry. Got some people who cover up anything just to keep their ministry. Just to keep the pulpit. Just to keep the prestige. Not David. David said, you can have the palace, you can have the throne, you can have the position, you can have the ministry. You can have my sword and my sling and Goliath's sword and all the accolades of this entire nation. But don't take your presence from me. Your presence is the most important, vital thing in my life. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's what we have to be willing to do, especially if you're a minister. If I never preach again and that's what God wants, so be it. But cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I still want to talk to you every day. I still want to see from you every day. I still want to hear from you every day. 
The position can be gone. But your presence is everything to me. Your presence is what I need. Your presence is what I long for. Prayer in presence. It's everything. It's everything. He didn't ask to keep his ministry because his ministry wasn't his identity. He asked for the presence. It's so incredibly important that you remove everything that forms your identity that is not his presence. Move it far from you. That your voice or your talent or your speaking or your gifts or even the gifts of the spirit, whatever it is, that's not your identity. You're not singing guy, preaching guy, prophesying guy, healing guy. You're a son or daughter of God. And his presence is your everything. It's my everything. Everything. Nothing can eclipse the importance of that. Exodus 19, we see God very quickly setting up levels of consecration, opening up a greater proximity to his glory. Because in this particular scripture, the picture that he painted with his word earlier to us is that they're all here around Sinai. Everyone is out of Egypt, but not everyone is encountering his nature and presence at the same level. Big difference. The hungry got invited to the top. Those that hungered for more, willing to step away from things just to see more of him. Willing to lay down not just the sin, but the weight that does so easily beset me so that I can see more of his goodness and his glory and spend more time with him and release who he is. So the peripheral, I just wanted out of Egypt crowd, has a different reaction to everything that they're seeing. The hungry get to the top. But on the sides, the I just wanted out of Egypt, I just wanted to be saved, is it heaven or hell? Because if it's not heaven or hell, I'm not interested. You understand what the analogy or the metaphorical connection is to what that would mean in your marriage, right? Those of you that are married. It's not good. It's, pro- it's, it's profoundly not good. It's like me asking Tamberly, what would you divorce me over? And she says a few things, and I say, I won't do that. But I'll do whatever else I want to do. It's the same thing. Is it heaven or hell, though? Is it heaven or hell, though? Is it heaven or hell, though? Will you divorce me over it, though? So every time Tamberly wants to have a confrontation or a talk, which happens occasionally, And I just go into it and go, okay, look, is this a divorce thing? Because I don't know that I've got a lot of time for this. Game's coming on. Just kind of want to sit down, be left alone. How happy am I married? How many stitches do I need? And how long will the couch be my place of refuge? But that's what we do to God if you minimalistically say, is it heaven or hell, though? Is it heaven or hell, though? Is it heaven or hell, though? I don't do that because it's not heaven or hell. It's not about being more saved. It's about being more like my Savior. 
does it make me more like Jesus? That's the question you need to replace, is it heaven or hell with? Does it make me more like him? But you see these different levels are opening up and you start to see it unfold. Because the I just wanted out of Egypt crowd, they start hunting for the boundary and the borderlands of his presence. That's what they start doing. I don't have time to go into it. But they're way on the backside of a hill. How far away can I get and still be considered his? How far away can I remove myself and still be entitled to be out of Egypt? That's the danger in that. I'm trying to find the line. Not the line that gets me closer to him, but the line that gets me further away from him. But I'm still his. I'm still saved. I'm still a Christian, but I'm just on the boundary, the borderlands of his presence and his goodness and his nature. But Joshua found a different line. He's towing the line closest to the mountain. He's towing the line that says, if God says this is as close as I can get to his glory, this is where you're going to find me. Tow on the line because I'm in love with what I see on top of that mountain. I've never seen anything like that before. I've never felt anything like that before. It's empowering and liberating. That's the line you need to be looking for. Not the one that gets you further away. Tourists thrive in the I just want out of Egypt church. Church that doesn't ask much yet still checks the box of salvation, allegedly, theoretically. And allows me to leave my Christian badge firmly in place on my social media profiles. This mentality reveals itself in the metrics that we often use as well to validate our existence or how we're doing spiritually. This really hit me right between the eyes. I say this with zero judgment because this was said to me first. But this betrays very quickly, and we're not going to like this, the heart of a tourist. Someone asks you, how's your church doing? My response Oh, it's good. We're running about 300 or 3,000, or we just opened a third campus. I immediately go to metrics that Jesus doesn't even use. I immediately point to something as validation of my identity that he never even brought up, that you can't see him using once. Is it evil to know how many people go to your church? No, of course it isn't. But is it a metric that Jesus used? Again, the answer is no, of course it isn't. Because in his detailed review of the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation, Jesus not once mentions how large or small the church attendance actually is. How many are you running isn't even a metric Messiah sees as valid. He is interested rather in this question. What is your nature, not what is your number? Is there transformation? Are people seeing more of me? Are people being brought out of darkness and walking in to my marvelous light? Not what is your number, but what is your nature? That's what he speaks to in every single response to the churches in Asia. It's about nature, not numbers. 
What's the nature of my prayer life? What's the nature of my relationships? What's the nature of the church's marriages? What's the nature of our worship in lean times and in times of abundance? What's the nature of forgiveness, love, and grace that we show those that we feel don't deserve it? What's the nature of things we stand for? And what's the nature of things we stand against? It's nature, not numbers. These are the metrics we see Jesus employing in his detailed assessment of the things that are going on in the seven churches of Asia. If we're using things he did not use, we should just stop. And don't be overly convinced of them. It's not that you can't use it. God's just saying don't be overly convinced of it. It's kind of like, I think, my, I think I'm good because my gift still works. That doesn't mean I'm good. That means he's good. You're riding the wave of his goodness and thinking it's your goodness. I know another character in the Bible that did that. His name was Satan. It's the biggest trick, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is making people think they're good because their gift still works. Your gift is an unrepentant gift of grace. It testifies to his goodness, not ours. So just because I can still preach or prophesy or sing or do whatever it is or play, it doesn't mean I'm good. It doesn't mean I'm really becoming more like him. It's a testament to how good he is, that he uses us flawed human beings and people. It's a testament to his grace, his nature, his goodness and power and love. It's nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with me. an incredible danger to just assume I'm okay and keep pressing into that direction because everybody said it was wrong and I felt it was wrong but I stepped out I went out there I tried it my gift still works must not really matter it's a dangerous place that far too many far too many have ventured out into kingdom citizens we can stay here we can dwell here God wants us to dwell here because we were born here you have potential musicians you can come give the people hope amen you have the potential to live from him and release him into every situation that you walk into as I said earlier tourists come to the house of the Lord but citizens become the house of the Lord Tourists can be spirit-filled, but citizens are spirit-led. Tourists check in and out and visit the presence of God. Citizens live from the presence of God. A citizen and a tourist have different inner cultures and perceive and value very different things. They hunger for different things, and they're attracted to different places. What awes the tourist is elementary for the citizen. And what awes the citizen is hidden from the tourist. Hidden. The Bible tells us it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to seek it out. If you want to act like a royal, then you will seek what God has hidden for you, not from you. 
It's just like an Easter egg hunt. If you're not a sadistic parent, you don't hide the eggs from your children. I've been very tempted to do this on more than one occasion. You hide them for your children because you get joy when they find what you have hidden for them and not from them. In his presence, in his word, you find infinite treasures that God, your father, has hidden for you, not from you. But they can only be revealed to the heart of a citizen, acting like a royal, that seeks out what's been hidden for them. Because it's the glory of lowercase kings of the earth. If he's the king of kings, somebody's got to be a king. Somebody has to act like a royal to seek what he's hidden for you in his presence. I'm going to prophesy to somebody in this room right now. There are treasures, revelations that God has hidden in his presence for you. And when you push into his presence this week, you're going to find them and it's going to unlock some mysteries in your heart and mind. It's going to solve some riddles that have been continually confounding you. You're going to find answers that liberate and empower you in His love, in goodness, in glory. It's going to change you forever, but you have to be willing to seek and pursue Him and go after Him with all of your heart so that you can discover every single thing that He has hidden for you. God is inviting us into a deeper dimension of citizenship in this house tonight. An invitation to live in the Spirit, not just momentarily access it on occasion, but to dwell in His presence and to live from His presence. To be more convinced of heavenly things than we are of earthen things. To not be shaken by what we see, but to know God's word forms my reality. God's love forms the foundation of my reality. And in his presence there are treasures forevermore to find by those that seek him. I've got to close right at time tonight. If you can just stand all over this house. God is searching in this place right now for the heart and the vessel that says, God, I'm done living like a tourist. I'm done just accessing you on occasion when I have time. I want to live as a citizen. I want to be exactly what you're speaking over me. I want to measure up to what you say I am. I want to live from a place, God, of perpetual hunger. I want to live and have a moment as David did in Psalm 51. that says, God, your presence is my everything. You can take anything you want, but just cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit, O oh God, from me. Because you are my answer. You are my hope. You are my love. You are the one that I seek. 
It's not what you do for me, God, that I'm after. It's just you that I'm after. Well, that's it. As they begin to sing, somebody just finds you a place to just spend time with him and say, God, here I am. I want to encourage you. Say, God, what do you want to talk about tonight? And these next few moments of prayer, I want you to say, God, I want you leading this prayer service. It may seem awkward at first because you might not be used to it. But just say, God, I want to talk about at this altar what you want to talk about over my life. Thank you, Jesus. Show us what you're thinking about us, oh God. Speak to their hearts. Speak to their minds, King of heaven. 